You know, it's one of those things where I, I love about Central is how collaborative this place is and how much we all get together and we work through and we talk about, okay, what's, what's God doing in the midst of this teaching and how do we, how do we want to lead into those moments and how do, what do we need to be reminded of? And that's one of the things that you don't find in a lot of places. It gets harder as a church gets bigger. Um, but one of the, the, the amazing things that has happened here at Central is how connected everybody is to go, how, how are we doing our part so that God, we know, will show up and do his. And so really appreciate the team leading us so well as we start working back into this series that Craig kicked us off with last week called Coming Home. And we are exploring an incredible story from Luke 15, traditionally known as the prodigal son. And I would like to invite you to turn with me there to Luke chapter 15. And our ushers are coming down the aisles right now. They would love to get you a copy of scripture. So if you don't have a copy of scripture with you this morning, just put your hand up and they'll get you a copy and would like to take you to to Luke 15. But as you're uh, getting your Bibles, as you're kind of getting settled in, as we're transitioning into this teaching time, I just want to ask you a question. And the question is this, how many of you would say that you absolutely, thoroughly love and enjoy watching films? That you just love movies, that you would go, man, if I could watch one new movie every week, I would be like a really happy soul. Some of you are like, I'd rather do like three or four, all right? We are people who love a great story, don't we? In fact, we will pay lots of money to engage and experience a great story. Uh, For example, these are going to be the top three domestic domestic grossing films of all time, all right? And I want to help us to see just how much we are willing to pay for a really great story. So top three domestic all-time best-selling films in the United States. The number three, can anybody guess it? Titanic. Titanic. Absolutely. Wow, that was like, you knew it? Authoritative? Can you know how much we put into it? That would be really hard. If you did, I would be like, you can come up and teach. So very, you're really close. That's scary. Uh, All right. Were you in the first service? No. Titanic, the third highest grossing domestic film of all time. We, in just the United States alone, $658 million to watch this great story. The second highest grossing of all times domestically is... Avatar, very good. Avatar, 760 million. And then, of course, the number one is Star Wars. Yes, The Force Awakens. Check this out, $868 million. I updated that this morning. This number will be different by tomorrow morning. How many of you have seen The Force Awakens? Okay, good. Keep your hands up. How many of you have seen it a second time in the theater? Okay, yep, right here. By the way, um, IMAX 3D, epic. All right, worth the drive to Grand Rapids and the little extra cash you have to pay, especially if you go with good friends. So um, these are films that have captured us, films that we have put lots of money into watching because we love a great story. And this morning, we get to delve back in to one of the most beloved stories in the entire Bible. Indeed, one of the greatest stories told in human history. 
We know it traditionally as the prodigal son. And last week, Craig did a great job walking us through the first part of the story, keying in on the younger son. Today, I get the opportunity to look at the character of the father. And we're gonna explore two major moments with the father. There are actually three in the story, but I'm gonna tackle the third with the older son next week. But for our time this morning, two moments with the father. And here's the thing I need you to keep in mind. When Jesus told this story, He expects his listeners to connect the character of the father with God himself. So as we explore the father this morning, when Jesus told this story, he told this story so that we would see the father as a representation of who God is. So let's dive back into this cherished story. And if you're a guest this morning, so great to have you here. If you've not engaged this story much in your life, you don't know much of it, whoo, are you in for a treat this morning? This is an astounding story. So Luke chapter 15, let's just read the first two verses just again to get a context of how everything plays out because with the Father, this is actually moment one. Verse 11 Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. He's talking about the inheritance here. So he, the father, divided his property between them. Now, if you were here last week, you know that these first two verses alone are absolutely explosive with meaning. That when the son asks the father for his inheritance, as Craig helped us understand last week, that was tantamount to saying, Father, I wish you were dead. This just doesn't happen. In fact, there's a really brilliant scholar by the name of Kenneth Bailey. Some of you may know this name. He has been instrumental in my reading and understanding of Luke 15, Craig as well. And he lived in the Middle East for 40 years. And he was so enraptured with the prodigal son, with the story in Luke 15, that he literally asked hundreds and hundreds of Middle Eastern people, hey, have you ever heard a story in your culture about a son asking for his inheritance while the father was still alive? And he said in almost every response he got back when something like this, no way, that's impossible. That would never happen. But on two occasions, someone said, yeah, I actually have heard of that before. And the first time that Kenneth Bailey Hurley heard about this, it was in connection to a father who was a physician who was healthy. Three months after his son asked for his inheritance, the father died. His wife said, actually, my husband died the day our son asked for his inheritance. And she talked about him dying of a broken heart. In the second case, the person said, yeah, I know what the father did. The father beat his son for asking, which is the expected response. Because either you beat the child, this is what it would have been in that first century cultural Middle Eastern world, even today as well, or you would disinherit your son, or you would do both. And absolutely mind-blowing and shocking, the father gives the younger son, his inheritance. I mean, it's like at this moment, the listeners to this story, because Jesus is telling the story in front of a crowd, they would have gasped. 
They would've been like, what? What is the father doing? The crowd within the story would've been like, I don't like this one bit. What if my son starts having these ideas as well? They are enraged that the father would do this. In fact, for the father to give the inheritance like this was a disgrace in the first century world. And my question is why? Why does the father do this? Why does the father disgrace himself by giving his son the inheritance? And the answer is rather simple, yet very profound. And it's this. He loves him. And his heart breaks for how lost his boy is. See, I believe that in this moment, the father recognizes that though home, his son is lost. And that the only way to potentially get his son back is to let him go. See, our propensity in these moments is we, we want to hold on tight. We want to get that person to do what we want them to do. We hold on white-knuckled. And yet the father doesn't do this. The father does this. He releases him. Because sometimes you got to let go in order to potentially receive back. Another book that has been very helpful to me is a book by Henry Nouwen. Some of you may have read it. It's called The Return of the Prodigal Son. It's based around Rembrandt's painting of the prodigal son. And Henry Nouwen writes this astounding book just on this story in Luke 15. And normally I like to put quotes up on the screen so you can both hear me and see the quote at the same time. But this morning, I just want you to listen to what Henry Nouwen writes. And it's about this moment, and he calls the younger son the beloved. Not that the older son isn't beloved, but this is just the language he uses of the younger son. And because Henry Nouwen understood that Jesus' telling of the story was to connect the father to God, he talks about God here in this moment. Notice what he writes. This is on page 44, if any of you end up snagging this book. Not my book, but get your own, okay? Uh, verse 44, God has never pulled back his arms, never withheld his blessing, never stopped considering his son the beloved one. But the father couldn't compel his son to stay home. He couldn't force his love on the beloved. He had to let him go in freedom, even though he knew the pain it would cause both his son and himself. It was love itself that prevented him from keeping his son home at all costs. It was love itself that allowed him to let his son find his own life, even with the risk of losing it. Now, many of us, we hear that, and we even hear now when using the word risk, and the immediate thing that rushes to us is, yeah, but that kind of action, like, that is way too risky. Yep. Because true love is risky. Pure, unadulterated, no strings attached love is always risky. 
because with true love, there are no guarantees. They may come back, they may not. They may love you back, they may not. They may do what you want them to do, they may not. And in loving them this way and letting them go, your worst fears may come true. But the most compelling stories are always the stories laced with risk. And I believe this is in part why we resonate so deeply with the story is because there's great risk. Look again with me back to those three films. All three of these films, the best films that have ever been seen or paid for in the United States are all laced with risk because that's part of what makes a great story a great story. And the father takes a risk and he lets go. Moment one. In the interim between moment one and moment two, some of the father's worst fears come true. Notice with me verse 13. Craig expounded upon this last week. We're just going to read through this to catch those of us up who weren't here last week or don't know the story well. Verse three, not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth and wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. If you're a good Jewish boy, which he is, doesn't get much worse than that. Verse 16, he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Okay, so it just got worse. And then it says this, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven. Another way of saying God. So I've sinned against God and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Now, Craig explored this last week and did a great job. Let me just cap the highlight. When the boy says, or when the story tells us he came to his senses, traditionally we've read the story and we go, oh, he's repenting. Like he's waking up to the foolishness of what he has done and he's going back to repent and make things right with his father. Um, actually, we don't think that's actually what's going on here. And here's why. He says he wants to be a hired servant. As Craig unpacked last week, there were three types of servants connected to a household. The first was called a bondsman. This was someone who lived on the premises, was almost like family, was provided for by the father, the patriarch of the household. The second type of servant was like a subclass under the bondsman. They were kind of a, a servant of a lower rank, but same thing. They lived on the premises. They were provided for by the father. They were part of the family. The third type of servant is a hired servant. This is a person who has very little connection to the family, does not live on the estate, doesn't live on the premises, isn't necessarily provided for by the father. They basically come in, punch the clock, get their funds, and they go away. They're hired hands. And the son says, that's what I want to be. He doesn't want to be connected to the family because for the son in this moment, he believes the issue 
has to do with the money he has lost, not the relationships he has fractured. He doesn't recognize in this moment that his own brokenness has caused this, that he has brokenness with the father, brokenness with his brother, brokenness from, with the community at a large because in an honor and shame society, if you shame your parent, if you shame someone within your family, it's as if you are shaming the entire community. And for him in this moment, He wants to get back into the good graces of his father. He wants to try to earn his way back into the family. And he's seeking a route that will do the least amount amount of damage to his already damaged pride. He hasn't repented yet. When he comes to his senses, the next line tells us he recognizes his father has food and he does not. That's why he wants to go back. He's hungry. And so he starts to make his way back. And now we encounter moment two. Notice with me verse 20. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. I mean, there, are there any better verses than this in the biblical story? I mean, your heart just leaps with joy in reading this. And maybe for some of you who don't know this story well, like your heart just leapt. For those of you who've read this a hundred times, I hope maybe just a little bit your heart just leapt there. It's an amazing, amazing moment. It's moment two. Let's break it down. Notice all of the verbs associated with what the father does. Again, halfway through verse 20, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. Now this word filled compassion is in the Greek, splunkizomai. It is a word that literally means like your bowels or your entrails. It's like the gut of the father, the deepest part of him has turned with compassion into seeing his son. His stomach is involved. He sees his boy. He runs to him. He throws his arms around him and he kisses him. Again, notice all of these verbs. Saw, had compassion, ran, hugged, kissed. Notice all of the body parts associated with this. Eyes, stomach, legs, arms, lips. You could say that every part of the father is seeking to love and restore his son. Oh, the father's just like all of me. Every part of me wants in on this moment. Now, I want to key in on the middle one, the fact that he ran. So the the text tells us that the father sees him and it's like he goes sprinting after and he just engulfs himself in his son. Now, if any of you know anything about the first century world, you go, whoa, 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 whoa. That is messed up. 
See, for us in our, our 21st century world, we go, oh, he loves him. That's why he's running after him. In the first century world, and even in the Middle East today, dignified elderly men never run. You never run. You never expose your legs. That's shameful. That is disgraceful. And yet the father runs. Now we look at that and we say, okay, well, why does he run? We would say, well, because the father loves him. This is part of that extravagant love that allowed him to leave. And now he's got him back. And the father is so excited that he goes running after him in order to love on his boy. And if you answered that, the answer to that answer is yes, that is correct. But there's another piece to this and it makes this thing even deeper. You see, the way that villages were constructed is that your orchards, your fields, your olive groves, they don't sit next to your house. In a village, all of the homes are together and then everybody leaves the village to go out to all of the fields that are out there in the valleys, outside of the village itself. And so when the prodigal comes walking back, just like I see all the time in Middle Eastern villages, is that there's always little boys and girls out playing. Like there's a donkey over there, there's a camel over here, they're out playing and having a good time. And you better believe the moment they see the prodigal in the distance, they're racing in to tell mom and dad, you are not going to believe this, he's back. And because of the immense shame and disgrace that the prodigal brought on the community by shaming his father, you better believe that a crowd has gathered. And that in love, the father disgraces himself, yes, because he wants to demonstrate his love to his boy, but that love comes in the form of running the gauntlet of the community who is likely already heaping verbal abuses at the boy and it may even turn physical because they're so enraged at what the boy has done. And the father sprints through the crowd and throws his arms around him to let the rest of the crowd know, I am absorbing his shame. I am exonerating him in this moment. My boy is just fine and I have received him back. That is the beauty of the moment. And you have to imagine how much the boy's heart melts. Because again, notice what, what had he planned to say to his father? He planned to have said this, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And check out what he actually says. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And he leaves out the part about make me like one of your hired servants. And maybe for some of us, we read this, we go, yeah, well, that's because the father cut him off. I don't think so. I think something deeper is going on in this moment. I think that something has happened in this embrace that has changed the younger son. Notice what Kenneth Bailey, that brilliant scholar I was talking about earlier, writes about this moment. So very insightful. And I felt in good company when I finally read this and thought, he thinks the same kind of thing. Notice this. He, the younger son, is shattered by his father's demonstration of love and humiliation. 
In his state of apprehension and fear, he would naturally experience this unexpected deliverance as an utterly overwhelming event. Now he knows that he cannot offer any solution to their ongoing relationship. He sees that the point is not the lost money, but rather the broken relationship which he cannot heal. Now he understands that any new relationship must be a pure gift from his father. He can offer no solution. To assume that he can compensate his father with his labor is an insult. I am unworthy is now the only appropriate response. I think in this embrace, repentance has fully clung to the prodigal. And I would just say this, when we are met with the lavish, generous, unbridled love of the Father which has no limits, things change. Our pride gets stripped away and we are changed. Our pretensions are stripped away and we are changed. That when we recognize in a moment like this, when we are engulfed by the love of the Father, that we cannot earn this kind of love. We cannot earn this type of grace. We cannot earn this type of mercy. We can't earn this type of forgiveness. That all we have in this moment is, I'm unworthy. And the God that we serve and the God behind the Father in this story is that God goes, yeah, I hear that you are unworthy, but I'm about making the unworthy worthy. And this is precisely what the Father does next. As soon as the Son says this, we are told again in verse 22, notice what happens. But the Father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. By the way, who does the best robe belong to? It's the Father. The father says, bring the best robe. They're bringing the father's robe to clothe the boy. By the way, robes in the ancient world were a symbol of your status and your identity. Why is it such a big deal to the rest of Joseph's brothers in Genesis that Joseph got the coat of many colors? It's because it said something about Jacob's love for that son that the other sons picked up on the cues and they go, huh, he loves him more than he loves us. That's a problem. Because that's what a robe symbolized. Now, in this moment, the father's not saying, well, I love the younger son better than the older son. What the father is doing in this moment is clothing his son in his righteousness. That as the son wears the coat, it symbolizes to the rest of the community that the father says, he is worthy to wear my robe. I am clothing him in my righteousness and my status. And he gets a robe. What else does he get? Well, he gets a signet ring. Put a ring on his finger. A signet ring would indicate that he now has authority to make decisions. He gets sandals on his feet. Servants, slaves are barefoot, but children in the household wear sandals. He has been restored to sonship. And what's more, what does the father say? Hey, uh, bring the fattened calf, kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. The father isn't joking because when I've been in the Middle East and I've had an opportunity to have a meal with Bedouin and there's been 10 of us or 20 of us or 40 of us, you kill a goat. 
or you kill the sheep because that feeds that number of people. (laughs) They don't have a way to preserve meat in the ancient world. If you are killing a fattened calf, it's because you plan on feeding the whole village. When the father says, get the calf and let's kill that thing and let's celebrate. This isn't just for the family to celebrate. The father is instituting a meal of reconciliation that the entire community is being invited to be part of. The father is going through great lengths to restore his son. See, this is the point of this moment. You just say this, the point is the lavish, generous, unbridled love of the Father who will go to whatever lengths necessary to welcome us home and restore us. And this Father goes to great lengths to do this. Now we hear this and maybe for some of us we go, man, there's parts of this story I never knew. Maybe for some of you, you're, you're being hit for the first time on just the weight of this story. But then again, maybe some of you are going, yeah, this is, this is great and all, but this is just a story that Jesus told. This isn't a true story. It's a parable. Jesus made up the story to connect some points, but it's just a story. Well, for Jesus, not too shortly long after he tells the story, Jesus actually goes and lives out this story by heading to a cross. This is the story of the cross. You see, this is one of those things that just baffles people. It baffles people today, it baffled people in the first century. Notice how Paul writes about the cross. He wrote this to a community in Corinth, a community of Jesus followers. Corinth is about an hour drive west of Athens today. And about 2,000 years ago, this is what Paul writes to this community in Corinth. 1 Corinthians 1, he writes, For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. That at the center of this stumbling block and foolishness is the idea of Jesus Christ being crucified. Why does Paul write it this way? Well, because for the Jews... They had a mentality of that the Messiah would come and fight a decisive battle against Rome who was oppressing them. And yet what happens is that Jesus not only doesn't do what they think, he doesn't kill the Romans, he is in fact killed by the Romans on a cross. They they, they can't get their mind around that a Messiah would do that. And from a Christian faith, we recognize it's not just the Messiah, it's actually God who goes to the cross on our behalf. Paul says it's a foolishness to Gentiles. Think about who the Gentiles were at this moment in the first century world. They're the Romans. The Romans think this is foolishness because guess what? They just crucified Jesus on a cross. This is the most humiliating, disgraceful, shameful instrument in the world at that time. And this was the most shameful way to die. 
And they go, that's foolishness. And the Jews go, well, that's a stumbling block. I can't get that. I can't wrap my mind around that. And even today, take major world religions, take Islam for, the, for a second. They can't possibly fathom Someone like their Muhammad dying on a cross, their God Allah dying on a cross for the people. They can't register that because it's so shameful, it's so humiliating. And yet this is precisely what Jesus Christ did. And notice why he did it. In the next book, 2 Corinthians, Paul writes this. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, what the father does in the story is he does what is shameful and humiliating in order to love his children well. That what Jesus Christ has done for all of us, because if you are a follower of Jesus, we have all been the prodigal. We have all been far away from home. And the great message of the cross is that we deserved to be there. That because of our sin, because of our failings, because of the choices we've made, we were far from God. We could not come back to the Father's house unless the Father did something on our behalf. And when Jesus goes to the cross and he does what he does, we are met with the reality that in a way he's living out Luke 15. Because this is a God who is willing to humiliate himself and take on the shame in order to enable his kids to come home. The father gives the inheritance that's disgraceful and humiliating because his son is lost. And the father knows that the only way I can potentially get my son back is I have to let him go. So the father humiliates himself so the boy can find a life. The boy comes back and the father humiliates himself by running because he wants to restore his son. And Jesus goes on the cross and does the most humiliating thing possible so that you and I can return home. And this God will go to whatever lengths necessary to enable his kids to come home. And when we do, <laughs> and when we do, and this is a God who welcomes his kids home with open arms. A couple weeks ago, I had the opportunity to connect with someone I've gotten to know pretty well over the last two years. It was about two years ago that she and I met. Uh, we met in my office. She had just recently become a follower of Jesus. I mean, she was very, very early in the game. And her life was a bit of a mess before Jesus. And just because you enter into a relationship with Jesus, things don't change overnight. Uh, she was addicted to heroin. She had dropped out of school. Um, she had been struggling with relationships with guys. 
And she was just really struggling to understand what does this all mean and how does this all play out? And so we would get together and we would talk about faith and, and we'd talk about troubling passages in the Bible that she was struggling with. And we talked about like, what is this, what is Jesus like? What does it mean for him to take over our lives? And we would do this about every four or five months. We'd get together and we would talk. And so when we got together just a couple weeks ago, it was uh, an amazing opportunity to find out what was going on in her life. And so we just sat down. I said, hey, how are you doing? And this huge smile came on her face and she said, I am doing well. She said, I, as you know, she goes, I went, went back to school and in the first semester, I got four A's and a B. She said, I broke up with a guy I was dating because he wasn't a follower of Jesus. Someone who would have given herself to any guy that cared before this. She said, um, a couple weeks ago, I led my sponsor to Jesus. And she said, and I've been sober now for a year and a half. Yes. And so I'm celebrating with her. I mean, my, my smile is as big as hers, if not more. And I was like, this is so great to hear. And she goes, yeah. And she goes, so tell me, tell me, how are you doing? What's going on in your life? Tell me, what is Central doing in January by way of teachings? And I said, oh, Craig and I are like so excited. We get to do the story of the prodigal son from Luke 15. And in that moment, she started tearing up. And she goes, that was the story that brought me to Jesus Christ. She said, Brad, when I heard that story for the first time and I became aware that despite whatever I have done, that this is a God who is waiting to embrace me with open arms, I want that. And she said, it was on that day I gave my life to Jesus Christ. Maybe for some of you this morning, maybe your story is her story. Where maybe prior to really understanding the depth and breadth and weight of what kind of a God this is, that you would say this morning that you aren't in relationship with God. As Paul mentioned in that previous passage that we read, be reconciled to God. We would invite you into that reality today that this is a picture of who God is. And maybe for you this morning, this is a decision that you would wanna make. That you don't understand all of it, you don't have it all figured out, you probably have a lot of questions, but maybe you just say this morning, like, I want that. We want to give you an opportunity here in a few moments. But I just wanna share with you just a couple of very personal things. And I hope this is helpful for all of us, not just for those of you this morning who are here and you go, I'm not in relationship with God, but I'm interested. Is that the Bible tells us that, that Jesus died on our behalf, that he took our punishment so that we would have no judgment. And that when we say, yes, Jesus, I believe that you are our Lord, that you have saved me, and I want to enter into a relationship with you, the Bible tells us that we receive the gift of eternal life. Um, I'm ecstatic about the gift of eternal life. Um, sometimes, if I'm really honest, I have a hard time getting my mind around it because I haven't experienced it yet. And I'm 100% certain 
that it's a true reality that I'll get to experience after I die, never to die again. And that's one of the gifts that Jesus gives is eternal life, that when this mortal life is done, that life continues on for those who are followers of Jesus, get to spend eternity with this God. I love that. I can't wait for that. But here's what I know right now, is that the other gift that we receive is that the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that empowered Jesus, is the same Holy Spirit that animates a follower of his. And that because of the work of the Holy Spirit coming in our life, we get to have a personal, intimate relationship with this God. And I can tell you just for me, there is no greater joy in my life than being able to have a personal, intimate relationship with God. To never feel alone to always know that I can share anything and everything with this God. Whether it's words of gratitude or pleadings for help, that this is a God who loves me, a God who accepts me, a God who welcomes me home with open arms, a God who challenges me, who pushes me to be the kind of husband I want to be, the kind of father I desire to be, the kind of pastor I long to be for you, to be the kind of disciple that Jesus is calling me ever and more expandingly into, that this is a God who you have all the time. That is as real to me as anything that I can touch or see or experience. And my deepest desire is that we would all have an ever-deepening, ever-expanding relationship with this God. And if you have never entered into a relationship with this Jesus, we tell you, we plead with you, we don't believe there's a bigger decision you could possibly make in life. So here's what we want to do, and this is for all of us. We're going to take about three or four minutes. I'm going to ask our musicians to come to the stage now. They're just going to play just for a few minutes. And I would like to invite all of us into a time of response. For those of you who know the story, you've been a follower of Jesus, I pray that you would just sit in these moments and just allow the extravagant love of God to just wash over you. And if the Holy Spirit is speaking you in any way, just ask yourself, God, what are you saying and how am I to respond? And then for those of you who would say, I've never made a decision to follow Jesus, but this is something that I really want to do today. Now, I've composed a prayer connected in with this teaching that I would just invite you to, to read and pray sometime over these next few minutes. For thousands of years, the way people have often entered into a relationship with Jesus is just to speak words out to him. And sometimes we just don't know what to say. So there's nothing magical about these words. It's just an opportunity to give voice to what your heart may be feeling inside. So let's all just take a few minutes. Let's just sit. Let's just well in the love of God. And then we'll sing a song together. And then I'll come up and just take a few moments to close out our time. So let's enter into this together.
to your, I'm running to your arms, I'm running to your arms, the riches of your love will always be enough, nothing compares to your embrace, light of the world, would you stand, let's sing that again, I'm running, oh, so grateful that you joined us here at Central today. And we just want to just let you know that if any of you uh, made a first time decision to follow Jesus today, we want to celebrate with you. That's not the end of your journey. It's the beginning of your journey. And as a way of letting you know that we're not only interested in this moment today, but we're interested in your journey ahead. We have a really nice Bible a leather-bound Bible that we would like to give to you to let you know that we want to invest in your journey ahead. And so if that's you, we would just ask that in a moment, I'm gonna close this out with a word of blessing. Come forward and off to the stage to the left, we're gonna have a few people. We'd love to just be able to hand you a Bible, pray over you and just uh, find out if there's any way that we can serve you. We're only gonna take a few moments of your time and we'd love to gift this to you. If you're someone who would just like to have prayer, we'll have people up front that can answer questions, that can pray with you, and we would love to be able to do that. But for all of us, as we leave here today, may we leave here being amazed and reminded at the extravagant, generous, lavish, unbridled love of the Father who goes to any length necessary 
to enable his kids to come home. May you be reminded that is the God that you get to have a personal relationship with. May you leave here today being washed over with that reality. And may the grace and love of our Lord Jesus Christ be fully present to you today and the remaining of this week. Grace and peace be with all of you. Have a great week. We'll see you next Sunday. Take care. of your life.